chapter 8. We're not going to cover the whole chapter today. So this one, we're actually going to cut it in half. So we're going to look at the first 25 verses only. Uh, it is Acts chapter 8. I'm just going to read, um, I'm going to read verses 1 to 3, uh, which we kind of ended with last week. And then the main part of what we're focusing on is uh, from uh, Acts 8, 4 through 25. And it is mainly the story of Simon the sorcerer. I had mentioned when we started this series in Acts, the uh, unstoppable mission of the church, that we were going to meet some very interesting characters along the way. And today is certainly one of those days. Simon the sorcerer, a very interesting character. Your, your versions in Scripture might say something else. It might say Simon the magician. Uh, might give him some other kind of title. But he's really what we're going to look at. But we need to see why it is that Luke, who wrote Acts, why he includes this little story of Simon the sorcerer. Because it's really in a bigger context about what God is doing through the apostles and disciples in spreading the gospel outside of Jerusalem. And so we're going to see how this story of Simon actually fits into that. All right. So I want to read just the first three verses to kind of go back and give us a little bit of detail. And then we're going to focus on verses 4 to 25. This is in Acts chapter 8. It'll be up on the screen for you. Here's uh, the first three verses. And Saul approved his execution. If you remember, that was Stephen. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. They stayed back in Jerusalem. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. But there was a man named Simon, who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him. From the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. They paid attention to him because, for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, 
And they received the Holy Spirit. So now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you said may come upon me. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Really interesting story. So I'll give you a little uh, a background here. And so what's happening is, you remember, of course, where this all started. The early church in Jerusalem, right? And so the vast majority of the early church were Jewish converts uh, to Christianity. But you remember that Jesus had said that he wanted his disciples to preach the gospel in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria to the ends of the earth, right? So that's exactly what's happening because remember... The mission of the church is unstoppable because what's behind it is the power of the Holy Spirit. We see that same theme here this morning in Acts chapter 8. And so that's what's starting to happen. Because of the persecution of Saul, it actually dispersed the disciples. And we're going to see the ramifications of that in a second. Now, how many of you, when you were growing up, uh, you actually went to the circus. Many go to the circus? Most of you. It's one of the regrets that, that I have is that I never took any of my kids to the circus. I don't know why it is. But I remember when I was a kid, it was really popular. And uh, almost every year, my grandma, she would take me, uh, just me, and just her and me. It was sort of a, a grandma and grandson time. And we would get on the train and we would go to Madison Square Garden. And we would see Ringling Brothers and Barnum and Bailey Circus. What, what's the, what is that known as? The what? The greatest, the greatest show on earth, right? And for me, it totally was. It was awesome. I mean, there were magicians there. There were people doing amazing things. There was all kinds of animals, exotic animals, and elephants doing tricks, and and uh, all of those scary clowns coming out of the little car, right? <laughs> But it was awesome. And, you know, I remember those days. And, uh, you know, it's interesting what things you remember from your childhood, the things that have an impression. And I just remember the smell of the circus and the sights and the sound. And it truly was the greatest show on earth for me. And there was always that ringmaster, right? And he was the master showman. And he kind of led the whole thing and directed it. And I remember I would always want to get, I'd get popcorn, and then they always gave away this little light. Maybe some of you remember that. It had a long string on it. I guess today we'd use our cell phones. And you would take it, right? And at certain points, they would turn the lights out and you would twirl it around. And you would look around and be all these lights twirling. It was like the coolest thing ever. And I remember wearing that like a badge of honor afterwards on the way home. I had this light and it was so cool. 
But you know what's interesting is that we meet this guy Simon, and he is kind of like that ringmaster. He's like a master magician. It says that he had amazed the people of Samaria for many years. He was like the greatest show on earth. He was the master showman. It said that he was a magician. But here's what we have to know. The word that is used to describe him as a magician, and some versions say sorcerer, is much more than what we might consider magic or illusions. He actually was a sorcerer, meaning that his power, whether he knew it or not, was demonic. Now, he might not have been giving into that or recognizing that that was the source of it, but Satan the enemy was using him to deceive the people to the point where he even called himself great. Now, you might, some of you might know how to do magic tricks. You can do a sleight of the hand with cards or... You go into New York City, you see people on the street corner doing it, or you watch some famous ones on TV. They do these things, it blows your mind, right? And that's amazing. That can be entertaining and good. But when the person doing it starts saying they have supernatural powers, or their powers come from someplace other than themselves, then obviously it is extremely dangerous. And we could talk, we could be a whole sermon about that. That's actually not. The point and the context here of why he talks about Simon the sorcerer. But it's, it's important to know that as Christians and as a church, we need to be on the lookout for that. For people that are false prophets that claim that they have powers that supersede human abilities and they claim to be great, just like, uh, just like Simon did. So he kind of was the, uh, the town showman and he had amazed everybody for years. And you know what? He loved it. He loved the adulation. He loved the fame, the prestige, and I'm sure the lifestyle that went along with it. He's a really interesting character. But what we see in verses 4 to 8, which kind of leads us into meeting him, is that because Saul was persecuting the church, the disciples, everybody except the apostles, they scattered. So Saul's uh, intent on sort of squashing the spread and growth of Christianity, it backfired. Because instead of doing that, what happened was it had forced the disciples to leave and to go and do exactly what Jesus called them to do. Because they didn't run and hide. Let that be the first note we make here of application for ourselves, is that they didn't run and hide. It says those who were scattered, in verse 4, they went and preached the Word. So they took the Word, even Philip taking the word to Samaria. That's how we get to meet Simon, because he's in that area of Samaria. And if, um, if you know about the Samaritans, we know the, the great story of the, the good Samaritan, right? The Samaritans were a mixed breed. They were sort of half-Jews. And they were despised by the Jewish people in Israel, by the true or pure or full-blooded Jews. Now, they were despised for many years, for many hundreds of years. It was really kind of back in uh, 722 B.C., uh, the northern kingdom of Israel was taken captive by Assyria, the king of Assyria, taken into captivity, right? They were conquered because, again, they were disobedient, so God allowed that for them. So if you remember from your Old Testament history, what happened was that king of Assyria, what he liked to do, it's kind of interesting, he came and he conquered an area, But then what he did was, 
he kind of took out all of the important people, so like all of the upstanding Israelites, all the important Israelites, and then he took some of his people and planted them there, kind of foreigners in that land, and they sort of intermarried and intermingled. And so what was left in Israel after that um, conquering by, um, by Assyria in 722 B.C., what happened was all of the sort of poor and destitute people of the nation of Israel, the northern tribes, were left, and they said they were then intermingled with the people of Assyria. And so, of course, then the people that uh, of the Jewish nation of Israel who didn't do that, over the years they started to have a real disdain for them because um, they were tainted. And so that kind of started the animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans. And that's why it was so amazing when uh, Jesus uh, went and met the woman at the well or uh, the story of the Good Samaritan. I mean, how that would have been um, taken by the, the Jews that were hearing that was just like, no, no, there's no way the hero of that story is a Samaritan, you know? And so that's sort of a little of the backstory here because it's even more amazing now. And we kind of try to put ourselves in the place of the early church who were mostly Jews like, you're telling me the gospel is now going to Samaria? Those half-breeds, they're getting this good news and this hope of new life as well. So Philip took that, that, um, that message there. And it said in verse 6 and 7, they accepted it really well. They saw all the signs and wonders. He was um, healing people with unclean spirits, casting them out. The paralyzed and lame were healed. And it said the crowds with one accord paid attention. Because Philip was bringing the gospel to Samaria. And then we pick up on meeting Simon. So that's sort of the background. So Philip's bringing the gospel to Samaria and they're all cheering and and there's a lot of joy. It says in verse 8, there was much joy in that city, of course, because he was doing great signs and wonders. But then he says, uh, Luke says, there was a man named Simon. So Luke decides that he's going to include this story about Simon the magician or Simon the sorcerer. And he tells a little bit about him. He says, but there is a man named Simon. And he had previously practiced magic, he says, in that area, the city in Samaria. And he amazed the people because he said that he himself was great. You can just picture him, right? I'm great, I'm great, and I'm the greatest show on earth, right? That was sort of his attitude. And people were buying into it. They're like, this guy, he's got, he's got the power. They even said he had the power from God. They said, this man is the power of God that is called great. They were like, he's got the greatest power. You could see how the enemy was using Simon, maybe even unwittingly, to distract people from the truth and the true power. That's kind of the story we see developed from Simon. So it says in verse 11, they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them. But look what happens in verse 12 and on. Really interesting. And, uh, and Luke starts to say, when the people believed Philip, so as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ, it says what happens is they were all baptized, both men and women, right? They gave their lives to Jesus Christ, and they were baptized right there. Verse 13 says, even, even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued on with Philip. So he believed And he continued on as Philip continued to preach around Samaria. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. That is a key um, phrase right there. Did you notice that? I want to read that again. 
the second half of 13. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Kind of just keep that in mind for now. So now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So here's why this is important, for a couple reasons. First of all, it's going to then lead us right into what Simon does and how Peter chastises him. But maybe you're a little confused about what's going on there. Because it says that the new believers in Samaria were saved. It says that they believed, but they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. Now what we understand Scripture teaches us very clearly, and I'm going to give you some verses on it in just a second, that the Scriptures teach us very clearly that at the moment of salvation, says any one of you here who is a Christian, who have given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, that at that moment you receive and are indwelt by the person of the Holy Spirit. He lives in you. He fills you up. And then the rest of your life you can continue to pray for His continued filling, but He's always inside of you. He lives inside of you, and He is called a seal until the day that the Lord returns, right? So He will never leave you. I want to make sure we understand that. That's an important theological concept that we believe that wholeheartedly here. That the moment of salvation, you receive the Holy Spirit permanently. He indwells in you, right? And then, for the rest of our lives, that point of sanctification, trying to become holy, to be more like Christ, surrendering ourselves in obedience to Him and trusting Him, we grow more like Christ. And then what happens is we ask the Holy Spirit to fill us so we can be obedient, That's our relationship with the Holy Spirit. That is so key because Simon, he fails at that. He doesn't get it at all. So he has a completely different view of the Holy Spirit and of the graciousness of God. And so it says what happens here is something that's actually unique. Because what happened was when Philip went to the Samaritans, the first time that happened, right? He brought the gospel. It says they believed But God did not yet fill them with the Holy Spirit. Now, why did He do that? Well, He's God. We don't know for sure, but we have some some ways, I think, that we can kind of figure it out and summarize why He would have done this unique thing about withholding the giving of the Holy Spirit to new believers until these two apostles, Peter and John, came. Because that's basically what happened. They believed, they were baptized, but they didn't receive the Holy Spirit until... The apostles said, Peter and John, you better get down to Samaria. You have to get down there and check it out. See what Philip's doing. We are hearing amazing things. That all these Samaritans are coming to the Lord. You can picture one of them saying, Samaritans? Yes, Samaritans. Go check it out. And so when Peter and John get there, and they confirm the ministry of Philip, they're like, this is amazing. They lay their hands on all the new believers, and immediately they're filled with the Holy Spirit. So it was as if God just delayed it a little bit so that Peter and John, two apostles who were called and commissioned by God and given the power to do such things, could go and validate and sort of give authority to and authorize the gospel going to the Samaritans. It was such an amazing thing that I think God also delayed the coming of the Holy Spirit 
so that the people wouldn't, um, so there wouldn't be divisiveness in the church there. Because there was so much animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans, right? They kind of needed a third party. They needed the authority of the two apostles, especially Peter, Peter and John, to come and say, this is legit. We're giving them the Holy Spirit. That's what God says to do. So that's basically the scene is what's happening. So that's where we pick up what happens with Simon. Because in two short verses, in 18 and 19, we see it turn on a dime like this. Because we had just seen where it said that even Simon believed, right? But then it says this, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands by the apostles, what did he do? He offered them money. It says he offered them money, said, give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. So it's basically like the great showman saying, I want to add that trick to my routine, right? He's like, check it out. You see what these guys did? They laid hands on the Holy Spirit. I want that power. So he's like, here, I'll give you money. Well, how much for that power? How much to buy that power to be able to do that? Because that's a great trick. Man, I can conjure those things up. I'm a sorcerer. I can do that. I'll be great again, right? So that's kind of what Simon does. So first it says he believed. But then it shows us his response to seeing the power of the apostles. He's amazed, but for all the wrong reasons. So his first thought is, I'm going to buy that power and add it to my bag of tricks. So then look at what Peter says, just the end of this passage, 20 to 24. Peter doesn't just say, Ah, silly, silly Simon. No, Peter just rails against him. Look at the words of Peter. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. This is serious stuff. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. Wait, maybe he's not really saved. Your heart is not right before God. This is Peter, the apostle Peter who's been commissioned by God and given the power of the Holy Spirit to, to, um, you know, to cast out demons and to heal people. And he says, your heart's not right before God. You have no place in this gathering. You're not part of the church. That's basically what he's saying. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. He's like, not even a little bit. He says, so you need to repent, therefore. Wait, I thought he believed. He's saying, repent of this wickedness of yours. He's using some strong language. He says, pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And then he goes even further in verse 23. He goes, for I see, these words mean a lot coming from Peter, I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Those are Old Testament words for sin. The gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. The next time you see somebody you love sinning, Yeah, don't say those words to them. That would be bad. The gall of bitterness, the bond of iniquity. I mean, that's stuff. So look at what it says in verse 24. I mean, you can just imagine Simon is like, what just happened? I thought we were all good. And he goes, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Like, he didn't even know what to make of it. He's just like, don't let it be true, right? I don't want that to happen to me. 
that's really interesting because then it ends in verse 25 it says that peter and john so they did their thing they brought the holy spirit and it says they were so amazed at what was happening in samaria that on their way back to jerusalem they were bringing the gospel to samaritans they're like this is awesome right Amazing story. So why did Luke, let's look at some applications for us. Why would Luke have included this little story? He could have just told us about the amazing things that Philip was doing in Samaria, bringing the gospel, and that Peter and John came, laid hands on, they confirmed everything and said, okay, this is true, you get the Holy Spirit, and then they gone back to Jerusalem. Because that's pretty much the context. But Luke throws in there this story of Simon the sorcerer. So what is it? Just in our last few minutes together, what can we learn from Simon the magician, or Simon the, uh, the sorcerer, right? Again, he was well known, and he loved being well known. Remember it said that he was amazed at all the signs and wonders? The first thing to remember is this, that there were many thousands of followers of Jesus, and we see it often. That one by one they would leave. When the miracles stopped, when the healing, when the free food stopped, when he said that he needed to, to die, when he was arrested, how many of them actually stuck with him? So there were thousands that, you know what? They loved the greatest show on earth. They loved the miracles, the signs and wonders that Jesus performed and now that the apostles were doing in, uh, to continue that mission, Right? They loved it. They loved the free food and and the great show. They loved it all. But did they love Jesus? So sometimes we're like that too, right? We love what Jesus is doing for us, but do we forget to truly honor and worship the one who's giving the gift? And see, so Simon, it says, man, he was amazed. Because you know what? He was like, that's what I do. I do these signs and wonders Maybe he didn't even know where he got it from. We know it was demonic because he was a sorcerer. But he was doing that and he was deceiving the people. He's like, oh, look how great I am, turning people away from the true and living God. But then he sees the apostles doing this and Peter and John and they lay hands and they're filled with the Holy Spirit. Who knows what that would have looked like? Somehow they knew it happened. There was some kind of physical sign. And Simon is just like, I want that power. So this first thought is, I offer them money. And so here's another thing, an important thing we need to remember. The person of the Holy Spirit is not a force that we can conjure up. He is not part of a bag of tricks. He's not somebody that we can wave a wand at or snap our fingers and He appears. He is God. And He lives within us. The way it's supposed to work is that we are at his beck and call he does not report or answer to us when we're obedient to god the father then we are surrendering our life to him that is giving permission for the holy spirit to do his thing within us remember we talked about the fruit of the spirit that it's not our fruit it's the fruit of the spirit within us when we surrender ourselves to god and we trust him then we give ground for that fruit to grow. And so we need to, to look at Simon's example and say, we can't bargain with God. I mean, he was like, here, give me some money and, and then I'll get that power. 
Don't we do that sometimes too? We bargain with God like, God, if you just get me out of this situation, I'll just, I'll do anything for you. Right? I'll, I'll even go serve in the nursery and change diapers, God. I'll do that. By the way, we need helpers in the nursery, so a little plug for that. But you know, it's like, we do that, don't we? And we, we kind of bargain with God. We kind of work out a plan. Maybe like a payment plan with God. God, you bless me now and I'll pay you down the road. I promise. I promise. It's almost like what Simon did. We're kind of offering God something. It's not even ours to give. It works the other way around. See, we are supposed to live according to God's standards, not our own. Isn't that why we read the Scriptures? To see who God is and what He expects from us? It's the same with the person of the Holy Spirit. He's not the force. He's not somebody that we can just kind of muster up enough energy and then conjure him up and boom he's here and now we have the power and it's not even about working harder to where it even gets to be like a works-based faith and understanding of salvation that we can work harder because you know what we can't work hard enough we can't give enough to please god and to receive that power it doesn't come from trying harder it comes from surrendering more I say that again. It doesn't come from trying harder. It comes from surrendering more. And so Simon, <clears throat> he had it all backwards. He thought that he could buy that power, that he could then manipulate it. And how many times do we do that? Even unknowingly, we try to manipulate God in our lives. We put him in a little box here. We kind of let him out here when it's important. And we feel like we truly, truly need him. Say, okay, God, you can have your way with me this time and in this little place. But it's about surrendering all of ourselves to Him and not thinking that we can offer anything to God to please Him. It says in Romans that we all fall short of the glory of God. That our works are like filthy rags to Him. Like, they're useless. Because why? Because Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, did all the work necessary For us to be reconciled to God our Maker, He did it by going to the cross and being that one true Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, takes away our sins once and for all. No more sacrificial system. We believe on the Lord Jesus for our salvation. It is by grace through faith that we are saved, right? It is through faith. It is through grace. It is Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone. And not any works that we can do. No amount of money given to the church or to a charity can put you in right standing with God. That is a great act, but those works of service and of giving, they come after the point of salvation as a response to God's goodness and a way to say thank you. Right? That's what we do. And you know, what Simon didn't also understand is that salvation, we don't know if he was truly saved or not. Indications are here he wasn't because of his response. Some scholars even say that that he matches a description of some other guy named Simon Magus who uh, actually went on to become a notorious heretic, spreading lies and false doctrine around the Roman Empire. We don't know if that was really him. Could have been. But the thing is, is that not only did Simon not understand 
the person of the Holy Spirit and what supposedly had just happened to him by giving his life to the Lord, he didn't understand how it all worked. That it simply was a gift. It was a gift. Now we're about to, you know, we're in the the celebration season, right? Celebration mode for Christmas. And we're gearing up towards it in this Advent season, anticipating the coming of Christ. We're buying gifts for loved ones and thinking through like what it is, getting getting a Christmas list. I heard there's even an, a, a sort of an app now. It's kind of like a, a wedding registry thing, but you can do it for your Christmas gifts and tell all your friends and family, hey, I'm registered at whatever for all my Christmas gifts. How's that, right? Oh, this is what he wants? Yeah, right. He is going to get that. But anyway, why do we give gifts, right? It's simple. And we know that. Especially as followers of Christ, we give gifts to represent the fact that God gave us the greatest of all gifts. We're about to remember that here with the Lord's table. That God gave Himself to us in the form of His Son, Jesus. And then what did Jesus do? Even uh, uh, the night that He was betrayed. right? He said that He was giving Himself to us with the bread and the, and the blood. He gave Himself so God gave us His Son. His Son gave Himself to us. So what's left is our response. And that is that we give ourselves back to Him. When we do that, Scripture says you're no longer your own. You were bought at a price on the cross once and for all. See, Simon didn't understand the nature of receiving a gift. That it was all a gift. That he could not pay for it. He could not earn it. And that it was all a gift from God. And um, before, um, before I close with my last thought, I do want to give you these references. We won't go over it. I think it's important when we talk about uh, this important doctrine of the giving of the Holy Spirit at the time of salvation. Would you write these down? It's in Acts, um, Acts 10, 44-46. I'll give these again in a second. It's in Acts 19.2. It's in Acts 2.38. I'll give them all again in a second. It's Romans 8 and 9. It's Ephesians 1 and 3. There's other places, but you can find all kinds of evidence for why it is we believe that believers get the Holy Spirit at that moment, not any time after. This was a special, a special dispensation by God for a specific reason. Again, Acts 10, 44 to 46. So we'll get to that in a couple of weeks. Acts 19.2, Acts 2.38, Romans 8.9, Ephesians 1.3, which says, Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That verse right there says it all, Ephesians 1.13. When you heard the word of truth, the gospel, when you believed it, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit. Okay? That's important. So the final thing to say about this, why would Luke have included this story about Simon the sorcerer? I do believe it's because Simon didn't understand grace and God wanted to make sure that we did. He didn't understand the person and power of the Holy Spirit. wanted to make sure that we understood that He is not at our beck and call, but we are to surrender to the leading of the Holy Spirit. He thought he could use God's power for his gain. Unfortunately, we see it throughout church, church history. We see it in churches around the world today. Leaders 
who are accountable to God, misusing God's power and the Holy Spirit for improper gain. We also notice that many people fell away once Christ was arrested and the greatest show on earth stopped. We see Simon saying, you know what, I want that power for me so I can use it for my gain. Was he truly a faithful follower of Jesus Christ? Sometimes we lose that initial excitement when we come to the Lord. Right? We all kind of do, and we kind of settle into life. It doesn't mean that the Spirit has left us or that we're not excited about our salvation and our walk with the Lord, but it does happen. But what's unfortunate is that in an immature perspective, how many times do we see people in the church that they get so excited and pumped up for what the Lord is doing and then a little something goes wrong or God doesn't answer a prayer and they're like, I'm done with God, right? I mean, we all kind of fall into that sometimes, but as we mature and grow and learn, that's supposed to happen less and less, right? The, the idea, the saying goes that we're, we're not going to become sinless, we just want to sin less, Right? That's the idea. As we grow mature in the faith. But a sign of maturity is not giving in to all of those little valleys, those things when maybe a prayer isn't answered, then we sort of give into it because God isn't showing up for us. We can't conjure up that power anymore. We don't see the signs and wonders in our life, so therefore we put that aside. We're looking for the next greatest show on earth. Right? We know that only Jesus is the greatest. The church is not for entertainment purposes, although some people can be kind of entertaining when you talk to them. The Holy Spirit is not um, commissioned to keep you excited and entertained, to keep you, you know, in your short attention span, including myself in this, from like, you know, being so excited and like everything is just you know, it's just all right there and then the littlest thing goes wrong and they're like, ah, forget it. What is it about? It's about that daily walk with Him. It's about that inner joy, not happiness. It's about a joy that we have that is not based on circumstances. It's about walking with God one step at a time. Why do we call it a walk? Why do we say, how's your walk with the Lord, brother or sister? Is because it's not a sprint. It's not a marathon, it's a walk. We are, it's a journey that we are on. And we are taking one step at a time with the Lord Jesus Christ. And with the power of the Holy Spirit, just, just illuminating the truth just enough of what God's plan is for our life, that we can walk with Him. And then that keeps us humble, and it keeps us trusting and obedient to Him. And finally again, I think he includes this story of Simon to remind us, you know what? God's grace... And the person of the Holy Spirit, the great comforter, it's a gift. You can't earn it. You can't do enough works to get it. He gives it to you. At Christmas time, when you receive a gift, what do you do to receive that gift? Do you reach into your pocket to take out some money and say, here you go, I'll take the gift now? Do you turn it away and say, no, I didn't earn that? What do we simply do at Christmas time, when we're given a gift, we go like this, right? We reach out our hands and receive it, and we say, thank you. And that's what we're to do with the gift that God has given us in His Son. That's what we're going to remember right now. 
uh, in this table of the Lord. We do this once a month and we do it, as it says, in remembrance of Him. So uh, as the men come forward who have, who have um, graciously offered to just kind of help us serve the table this morning, I just want to remind us of 